Welcome everyone to the horse.com's Ask the Vet Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of the horse.com. Tonight, our topic is equine botulism, your unanswered questions. And it's brought to you free tonight by our sponsor, Neogen. And I'm joined uh, by two experts, Dr. Allison Stewart of Auburn University and Dr. James Little of Neogen. Welcome doctors. Thank you. Uh, let's start with you, Dr. Stewart. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with this, uh, with botulism? Yes, thanks, Michelle. Uh, actually, when I was a veterinary student, I visited uh, the New Bolton Center in Pennsylvania, and one of my, one of the cases that I had to help with was a three-month-old foal that had botulism, and we had actually had to ventilate him, and so that really gave me an introduction to this disease. Um, and then during my residency, I probably looked after maybe 15 to 20 cases of botulism, mostly adult horses from forage poisoning. And we were actually successful in sending many of those adult horses home, but you really learnt how important the nursing care and all the day-to-day -day management um, of, those, of those cases were. So that's basically my experience with that. Okay. And uh, Dr. Little? Well, I, I started practice uh, in Tennessee in just a uh, an equine practice. Uh, it's been about 15 years ago now. Practiced for 13 years, and realistically, I wonder now, uh, you know, how many cases of botulism other than ones that I, I, I thought of uh, did I potentially overlook or miss? And uh, that's that's come to light to me in the last two years, of which I've been employed by Neogen, uh, the company who actually makes the Botvax vaccine. And it's uh, really uh, uh, taken an interest for me and, and really developed uh, an, in an interest in me to develop my knowledge for the vaccine and also for the disease itself. And really just trying to educate horse owners and veterinarians alike to the, to the true risk factors that are out there and what owners and veterinarians should be aware of when, when uh, trying to confront that disease of botulism. Yeah. You know, as a horse owner, one of the things that I find really frightening about botulism is you can have perfectly healthy horses one day and then lose your entire herd, you know, pretty quickly after they've been exposed. So it's such an important topic. And we got a lot of questions, tons of questions from people who registered uh, for this event, like we always do. Um, our event is an hour long, and we're going to try to get to as many of those questions as possible tonight. Uh, if you're listening live, you can submit questions live, uh, and our managing editor, Alex, is reading those as they come in and forwarding them to me. Um, but we're going to start off with uh, you, Dr. Little, and we have a question from Melvin uh, in Malta. And Melvin wants to know, what is botulism? Well, that's certainly a good question to start with. Uh, uh, in general, uh, botulism is a neuromuscular disease that ultimately uh, leads to muscle weakness in the horse. And this uh, can uh, start out as very subtle signs and symptoms of muscle weakness and really progress very rapidly. Uh, all the way to recumbency and even death uh, within a short, relatively short period of time. And the disease itself is actually caused by a toxin, and there, there actually are eight different or distinct types of toxins, and they're designated with letters, types A, B, actually there's two types of C, and then D, E, F, and G. And it's type B, by the way, that's the most common uh, form that affects the horse, but three types actually will affect the horse, type A, B, and C with, again, type B being the most common. And these toxins are produced by a specific bacteria called Clostridium botulinum. And in, uh, this bacteria really is found uh, in, the, in the soil. It's out in the environment. It's a, uh, a soil-borne organism. And when it's out in the environment, typically it's found in a spore form. And the spore form is very resistant to the environment. This bacteria, when it's in that spore form, can survive really uh, for an indefinite period of time. And the conditions that that bacteria like to live in are anaerobic conditions uh, in conjunction with some decaying organic matter, either vegetation or uh, animal tissue that's decaying. So if we put those conditions together, the spore typically turns into the active uh, form of the bacteria, which then produces toxin. And it's that toxin then that goes on to make 
cause the disease that's ingested by the horse. I will say there is a form of the disease also that can be um, acquired through simply through ingestion of the spores. And then the spores, once they reach the intestinal tract of the horse, are able to then uh, become active and produce toxins. So, so it's a it's a soil-borne organism that does have a spore form, enabling it to survive for a long period of time in the environment. And ultimately, that bacteria produces a toxin, which leads to muscle weakness. And I've heard that horses are the most susceptible, or one of the most susceptible species to botulism, and that it can take um, less botulism. Uh, toxin exposure to kill a horse than it takes to kill a mouse. Is that is that true, Dr. Little? That's true. The, the toxin itself is the most potent toxin that we know of, and then the horse is actually the most susceptible species of animal to the toxin. So in the horse's case, that's not a good combination, certainly. Uh, uh, it does affect multiple species of animal. The horse is not the only species of animal that botulism toxin affects. Uh, people can be affected by it. Uh, cattle, uh, avian species, um, you know, really a lot of different species can be affected, but out of those, the horse is the most sensitive uh, to the toxin. Okay. And Dr. Stewart, you mentioned your experience with a foal at New Bolton that had exposure to botulism. Can you tell us a little bit about what botulism looks like in a foal? Um, in a foal, it's always the foals that are born from unvaccinated mares. So that's one of the first questions that we ask. But one of the things the owner first notices is that the foal is laying down more than normal. And they might get the foal up. It's usually a foal that's a couple of weeks old or a couple of months old. It's usually not neonates. But the foal's laying down more than normal. And the owner would get the foal up, encourage him to stand, and the foal might get up and nurse. The foal might start actually having trouble swallowing and milk might be seen dripping out its nose. Um, and then these foals start to tremble and shake, and that's why it's been called for many years shaker foal syndrome, because these foals will start to get weak. The longer they stand, the weaker they get, they start to shake and tremble, um, and then eventually they, they lay down again. Um, and this process continues um, usually for a day or two, depending on how much toxin the foal is ingested, and the weaker the foal gets, the, the shorter periods of time it can stand and then eventually it can only stand with assistance and then finally it can't stand at all. Um, and about the same stage you start to see the milk leaking from the nose, you might notice that there's poor muscle tone of the tongue. If you pull the foal's tongue out, it might now not be able to get the tongue back. It might salivate more than normal. They often have a poor tail tone. Um, and in the later stages, weak eyelid tone. So if you open up their eyelids, um, they, they have no resistance there. Or if you shine a flashlight in their eyes, their pupils stay big and, and dilated. Um, and then it's a really quite sad condition because they still feel pain. They're still fully conscious. Um, but finally, they just can't stand anymore. They might be able to kick and struggle for very short periods of time and eventually become totally paralyzed and their respiratory muscles get weaker and weaker and weaker until they just simply can't draw in enough oxygen uh, and they go into a coma and die very quietly, um, which, is, which is quite sad that the foal is actually probably quite distressed about this, though, even though he's looking quite relaxed and paralyzed. Uh, Dr. Stewart, we have a question related to foals from Beth in Ohio, and Beth wants to know, uh, can the serotype be transferred from the mare to the foal through milk ingestion? Also, do the clinical signs of botulism mimic dummy foal syndrome? Okay. Um, it's usually a different age group of foals. We tend to see this condition in foals that are several weeks old to a couple of months old. And, and dummies are usually, you know, in the first week of life, certainly in the first two to three days. Um, the disease is not passed through the colostrum or through the milk from the mare to the foal. But, in fact, almost the opposite. The mare, if she's been vaccinated can make antibodies that are then transferred in the colostrum to the foal's intestinal tract, which will protect 
which will be absorbed and then protect that foal from that toxicoinfectious form, from the ingestion of those spores. So it's, it's almost the opposite, that the mare, if fully vaccinated and it's type B, um, can actually protect the foal. And Dr. Stewart, we have a question from Lisa in California. And Lisa says that honestly, she didn't know she had to worry about botulism with her horses. She wants to know what she should be looking out for exactly in the clinical signs in the adult horse. Yeah. Um, again, it's a little bit regional as to how commonly we see this disease. Um, in the mid-Atlantic states in Kentucky, it's a lot more common than the south. And there's certainly regions of California that are affected. So the signs that they should be looking out for, um, sometimes actually people confuse it with colic because the horse may be found to be laying down um, and then they get the horse up and then he feels weak and lays down again just like the foals do. So that can be a little bit confusing and sometimes even their gastrointestinal tract slows down a little bit such that on ultrasound exam it can look um, a little dilated and, and can even confuse um, confused veterinarians if it might be colic but the things to look out for is um, the, the laying down any kind of weakness um, any trembling but if you're concerned about your horse say if there's been a death um, of another horse or one horse is having clinical signs you really do need to go and examine every single horse and one of the first things that happens is the horses have trouble swallowing um, and actually getting the food into their mouth and so what you can simply do, it's called an um, eight-ounce grain test. And if you put eight ounces of grain in a bucket, most horses should be able to eat that down within about two minutes. But a horse with botulism will have trouble getting that grain into its mouth, may salivate a little bit more, leave saliva in the bucket, and do it very, very slowly. So that can be a good test in an outbreak situation to make a very early diagnosis. Um, and again, the same as the foals, as the disease progresses, they spend more and more time recumbent, um, poor eyelid tone, poor tail tone, um, and, 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 and progressively weaker. These horses can struggle and kick um, when they're down. You know, they, they rest, they lay down for a long time and then they rest for a while uh, and then they're able to kind of struggle on the ground, which, you know, sometimes gets people injured, so you have to be a little bit careful. Um, but, but they can't sit themselves uh, on their chest, they can't sit sternal um, and, you know, they can't swallow water or anything like that. And Dr. Stewart, you mentioned the grain test. Why would it be important to... Uh, use a test like that to see if the horse has botulism or, or is there another way to check to see if the horse has botulism? It's something that you, you, you know you don't do every day you go and visit your horse. Um, it is generally a fairly rare and usually quite sporadic condition but unfortunately we often see herd outbreaks where multiple horses are affected. And so if, you, if there is one horse that is affected or people are suspicious about it being botulism, then I always recommend to carefully assess every horse several times a day. Because if you can diagnose them, well, make a, a preliminary diagnosis very, very early in the disease, you've got a really good chance of saving them. And you almost have to treat these horses when you're still suspicious um, because by the time it's really obvious to, to everybody that they've got botulism, it can be very, very difficult to treat. So um, a veterinarian who has seen this condition will very, very quickly be able to diagnose it based on the clinical signs. But if somebody hasn't seen it ever before, um, it might be quite difficult. Um, Dr. Little, our next question is for you, and you've mentioned that this bacteria uh, is in an anaerobic condition, um, usually with some organic matter, um, a dead critter maybe, uh, and we got lots of questions about round bales and horses' possible exposure to botulism through round bales. Can you explain uh, for those who aren't familiar with round bales and the potential for botulism why we're concerned about that? Well, round bales certainly are probably the most commonly implicated source of, of the bacteria being able to produce its toxin. I would say that they're not the only source, 
but but often are implicated in the uh, transmission of the disease. Uh, a few things have to be present. One, the bacterial spores have to be present, and again, they're found in the environment. So anything or in the in the soil primarily, but anything that comes in contact with the soil, let's say the forage, in this case, um, can potentially have those bacterial spores on them when they get built up and processed. Uh, into a hay bale, uh, what they're looking for in order to survive and start producing toxin is an area that's moist, uh, has some decay, uh, some decaying vegetation, or potentially if there was a, an animal carcass that were baled up in the bale, uh, that would provide uh, a nice source of decaying organic material. But there, again, there doesn't have to be a dead animal carcass in the bale to be a problem. So if there's a spot of extra moisture potentially in that bale, uh, this could potentially lead to the start of decay and the development of that anaerobic environment that that, that the uh, organism is looking for in order to survive and, and thrive and produce its toxin. And round bales, I think, uh, are implicated more often because they are much larger, they're more bulky, there's more mass there if there happen to be a an area of higher moisture of content. Uh, that moisture has a tough time escaping that area. And then also, uh, typically when folks are feeding round bales, they're not inspecting every inch of that bale as the horse eats it. Uh, so if there happened to be a bad spot in the bale, uh, then potentially the horse could, could have access to it without the owner knowing. Uh, certainly these conditions can happen in small square bales even. The thing that helps us there is most owners are hand feeding those square bales and they would be more apt to notice an area of decay and whatnot in that bale and then just not feed it to the horse. Uh, so certainly round bales are most often implicated. Uh, it's not the only source uh, of, of problems, uh, but that would be some of the reasons why I believe they're more commonly implicated in uh, transmission of botulism. Okay. And Dr. Little, we have a question from Lynn and Alba Tack. Texas and Lynn said that that his horses are fed on large round bales of hay and during the winter months the bales tend to get wet from the rain because they're outside where the horses can can feed on them can that extra m moisture after baling cause botulism it certainly has the potential to again the first requirement is the bacterial spores have to be present uh, so if they are present and uh, the, the hay is exposed to uh, moisture, uh, which can then uh, lead to the start of that decay, I think we've seen bales that are stored outside, even on the top of the bale that's exposed to the moisture, turns an odd color, and then if we dig into the bale where moisture has been trapped after being exposed to it, then we, we see signs of decay. And also, especially if those bales are stored on the ground, when they come in contact with the ground and there's a high moisture content or a high moisture level there, again, that can lead to that start of that decaying process for that organic material, in this case forage, uh, and produce that anaerobic environment. And certainly, if the spores are then there, they can become active again and start to produce toxins. So the potential is certainly there. And uh, the management things that we can do to help prevent botulism would be to provide that good source of quality hay that's been cured and processed and baled as close to as proper as we, we can get. And then also it's very important to store it properly just for those reasons that uh, this question is related to. Okay. Dr. Stewart, our next question is for you and it came in from a listener in Virginia. And this listener says, since I feed my two horses round bales in their pasture, how would I be able to tell if one of the bales is tainted with, uh, with the botulism organism since the bales are so large and multi-layered? If there's a small dead mouse in the innermost portion of the bale, would it affect the entire bale and how would I find it in there? Uh, what a dilemma, <laughs> this, this listener says. Um, yeah. Dr. Stewart, do you have any advice? Right, and it, it is certainly a dilemma. I think in a large round bale, you're not going to find that one spot that is um, damp and wet and um, creating that anaerobic environment or even the mouse. I mean, there have been situations where one mouse has contaminated thousands of cubes of alfalfa 
Um, and so that, you know, that one mouse is going to be impossible to find. Uh, I think it's a good idea, as Dr Little had said, to always feed good quality hay that, that hasn't been baled damp. Um, and that also if it's baled damp and then it's wrapped in plastic or aluminium, that can almost be worse because then you've got a situation where there's less air. So looking at the hay um, in a large round bale is, is next to impossible. Um, and compared to, as Dr Little said, feeding out a square bale, if you're throwing out a flake at a time, you tend to notice if there's one big wet mouldy um, damp spot in the middle that could be in a situation where it hasn't had oxygen and um, botulism could be growing. So I think it is very, very difficult. And I always tell the owners of horses that are very, very distressed when they bring their horse in with botulism to us at the university referral teaching hospitals um, is that it's not their fault. You know, people can feed round bales for years and years and years and be fine and then all of a sudden this can happen. Certainly if you feed square bales, you're going to have less of a chance, but economically, some people, that's all they can obtain or that's all they can afford, but it is a risk. Um, but just by looking you know, at the bailout in the pasture, it's impossible to tell. Okay. Uh, Dr. Little, we have a question from the live audience that came in from Chris in Colorado. And Chris wants to know, is botulism becoming more prevalent? She said that uh, she had had a horse that got botulism from a dead bird in the hay, and they discovered that bird only after uh, the horse's stomach was pumped and they found feathers. Is it becoming more prevalent, or are we as horse owners and our vets being more educated about botulism? I don't think it would be necessarily becoming more prevalent. Uh, I think you're on the right track. I think folks are aware of it more, and uh, we have a lot more uh, awareness, uh, potentially when someone experiences a case of botulism as far as media outlets and whatnot that may have access to that, and therefore you know, people can find out more easily about cases that have happened. Uh, but I really don't think it's becoming more prevalent. Prevalent. These bacteria have been around for ages, really, and I uh, don't know that they would be found necessarily in more numbers now than they were you know, hundreds of years ago, really. But I think we're just hopefully being, becoming more aware of it and and, and, and knowing what to look for. And, and uh, again, maybe uh, uh, we're just hearing about them more. And Dr. Stewart, we hear a lot about how good it is for our horses to constantly have forage in front of them so that they, they have hay in their digestive tract all day long. Uh, how do we balance the free feeding and wanting to give our horses full-time access to hay and the need to look at each flake before they eat it? Because this is a question that I've had uh, from, from learning more about botulism. Yes, I mean, it really comes down to the quality of the hay. I mean, hay making's a difficult job, especially when you're dealing with trying to get hay in on hay cut and dried before it rains. So it really comes down to the quality of the hay when it was cut. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it can be really difficult, but, you know, you can do what you can do and there's some things that you can't avoid. But really just trying to get good quality hay, um, avoiding things like, uh, grass clippings where people have mown grass clippings and then thrown in a big pile of grass clippings. We know that's really, really bad for horses for colic and some horses have actually died from botulism because, you know, you can imagine that big pile of grass, sometimes that has fermented underneath. Um, even feeding vegetables that have been rotten. You know, we had a, a market gardener, somebody who owned a, a big fruit shop and they would feed all their old um, vegetables which weren't saleable for the public, for, for humans, and they would get fed out at the hobby farm. And, and of course, it's the horse that's most sensitive, so the horse that was eating those rotten lettuces ended up getting botulism. So I think you have to be very sensible with what you feed. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a little bit of good luck involved too, unfortunately. Uh, Dr. Stewart, we have a question from Ellen in Tennessee, and Ellen wants to know about the swamp that's behind her property. Is that swamp and the water that goes through the pastures uh, creating a botulism danger for her horses? Probably not. I don't think I've ever heard of any cases of water-associated botulism with horses. 
ducks, however, uh, if you've got a whole bunch of dead ducks or ducks that we call um, rubberneck, duck, ducks can get botulism or any kind of birds or any animals actually, but sometimes there are outbreaks in ducks and it's usually one or two animals have died and then contaminated the pond. But you see what we call rubberneck or the ducks get a, they can't fly and they get a weak neck or a swan or um, a goose. You know, they just really can't hold their head up and then they drown. Uh, and then contaminate the water. But I think generally a swamp, if you don't have a whole bunch of dead birds in there, you'll be fine. And in Tennessee, I'd probably be more worried about Potomac horse fever and making sure the horses are vaccinated for Potomac horse fever because of that swamp, um, the snails and the mayflies. So that's what I'd be worrying about with the swamp. Dr. Little, we have a question from Tony in North Carolina who's listening live, and Tony wants to know if the vaccine helps eliminate the risk of botulism. Can you tell us a little bit about the vaccine? The vaccine certainly is one of the tools, I think, that should be included in the, the toolbox, so to speak, when, when looking at a preventive strategy for botulism. But it is, again, it's important to remember it is specific for type B botulism. I mentioned earlier there is actually three types of botulism that affects the horse, type A, type B as in Bravo, and C as in Charlie. Uh, type B is the most common uh, form of botulism uh, of the reported cases that we know of, and its vaccine is certainly effective in, in helping prevent type B botulism. Unfortunately, we don't have any cross-protection that we know of against the other types, uh, but, uh, but certainly I think that for prevention of type B, the most common type, certainly vaccine, depending upon your risk level, certainly warranted. Okay. And Dr. Little, we have a question that came in from Debbie in North Carolina, and she wants to know how you would verify that a pasture is clean of botulism if there was a possible shakerful death related to that pasture. How can you keep your horses safe in the future, especially those little babies? Well, going back again, just to kind of review the basics of the disease itself and how it's acquired, uh, the organism is present in the soil typically, and it, it's present in spore form. Uh, now, there's three ways actually that horses can acquire botulism. They either, one, ingest those spores, and this is the most common route in foals, and it leads to that uh, what we call shaker foal syndrome. Uh, so it's the actual ingestion of just the spores typically that causes that disease in the foal. Now, to really rid the environment of, of spores uh, is really very impossible and certainly impractical to do. So I don't think that we could ever consider a pasture clean, especially if there has been uh, known cases of botulism in that, in that uh, area. I don't think there's any way that we could ever say that we have rid uh, the pasture of those uh, those bacterial spores. Okay. I mean, I'd probably add to that. If, if you've had a case of botulism on your farm ever, I would just vaccinate all the horses, especially the pregnant mares. Um, yes, you're only going to protect against type B, but that is the most common and it's generally the cause of shaker foal death. So you could protect the horses with the vaccine and you certainly can't sterilize the pasture. Yeah. Okay. And Dr. Stewart, we have a question that's come in from Benito in our live audience. Benito's in Ecuador and wants to know, can horses on fresh pasture get botulism? Generally, nice fresh pasture, it's um, less likely, um, we'll talk about the foals separately, unless again it's been mowed or there's clumps of dead, rotting, decaying um, grass. But it is in the soil. Um, so it, it is still possible, but generally with the adult horses, it is associated with that, with the feeding of hay or the feeding of grain rather than just the horses on grass. And I know the pastures in Quito are, are lovely green lush, lush pastures, so that would be less likely. Um, however, the foals, again, they ingest the actual spore, which then grows inside the intestine of the foal. Um, I don't know if keto is an area that that's a problem with the foals being affected, but that form we only see in the foals and we don't see in the adult horses. And that's probably, again, more of a soil ingestion rather than just eating hay. Okay. 
And Dr. Stewart, we have a question from Kendall in Virginia, and Kendall wants to know how often horses should be vaccinated for botulism. Well, certainly in Virginia, that's an area that I would recommend vaccination of, of all horses with the type B form. Uh, and you give three injections a month apart. I think I have that right, Dr. Little. And then we vaccinate once a year. Um, and it's also as a booster. Um, and it's also recommended to, to give your booster vaccine to the mare for four to six weeks before she's due to foal. Uh, and again, foals are usually vaccinated. You start their series of three vaccinations when they're usually about three months old, though you can actually do it as young as two weeks of age. Okay. And Dr. Little, did you have any follow-up on that? No, Dr. Stewart's exactly right on that. Three-dose series to start with, uh, and then it's a one single-dose annually as a booster after that. Okay. Dr. Little, we have uh, two related questions. One came in from Anna in Sweden and one from Abby in uh, Connecticut. And Anna wants to know, do you, do you recommend vaccination against botulism in general? And how many horses get botulism in the U.S. each year? Um, and she wants to know how common it is for horses to be vaccinated. Abby's question is, what are the determining factors for deciding which horses should be vaccinated? Uh, is it geography, location, lifestyle, age? Uh, do you want to take a shot at all those, Dr. Little? Yeah, you might have to remind me of what the last one was, <laughs> but I think it really comes back and plays, a, at least as related to the first part of the first question, do we recommend vaccination against botulism? Really, I, I tend to advise that, that folks follow the AAEP guidelines for vaccinations, and uh, AAEP includes vaccination for botulism in their risk-based category. So ultimately, what should be done is a horse owner, along with their veterinarian, should sit down and do a risk-benefit analysis, looking at the different risk factors which may be associated with the horse actually being exposed to or actually contracting uh, the botulism. So the things that would be looked at in that risk-benefit analysis would be uh, your geographic location. Uh, there are certain areas of the country that are much more prone or, or botulism would be considered more prevalent in. Kentucky certainly is one of those areas, and also the mid-Atlantic states, let's say Virginia through Maryland, uh, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, uh, on up to the north there. Uh, those, uh, the, the bacteria typically are found in, in much more concentrated uh, in those particular areas, and I think that ultimately leads to an increased chance of being exposed to uh, the spore and or the toxin if the conditions were right for that bacteria to survive and, and produce toxin. So that's certainly uh, uh, an increased risk factor potentially in the way of where you live. Now, if you don't live in one of those high-risk areas, uh, I think certainly your your risk of type B botulism anyway is less, albeit not totally eliminated. Uh, I think uh, there's potential anyway for that type B organism to be found really across the country, although uh, less of a chance compared to, again, Kentucky and the Mid-Atlantic region. So geographic location does play somewhat of a role. Uh, also remember uh, to think about if you are traveling with your horse, potentially you're taking your horse to an area where botulism is more prevalent. Uh, so you may be taking the horse to the problem. Uh, other things to think about, especially if you're not living in that high-risk uh, type area, would be am I potentially importing hay or feed sources from an area where the disease is more prevalent? Um, so those sorts of things are all should be taken into that, uh, uh, to, should be looked at in that risk-benefit analysis and then decided at what risk level uh, your horse is at and then ultimately what risk you're willing to take or should I go ahead and vaccinate for the horse as an added tool in helping to prevent the disease along with the management things that we talked about uh, earlier. I completely agree with, with what Dr. Little said, and we don't routinely recommend vaccination for botulism in Alabama and Georgia, where most of my clients are coming from. Um, however, those cases can happen. They're much, much rarer, and it, it's pretty awful if you're the veterinarian who recommends not to vaccinate, and, and then there is an outbreak. Um, so it really comes down to that cost-benefit. If, if you're the sort of owner that really wants to do the minimum and... Um, 
don't want to spend the money, then you take the risk. If you've got a very valuable horse or a much-loved horse, um, as, as Dr Little said, you often don't know where that bale of hay has come from. And so even if you live in Georgia or Alabama, you know, the, the small expense of the vaccine might just give you that peace of mind. It's probably really, really unlikely, and there's other vaccines that definitely need to be given first. Um, and, you know, nothing's innocuous, but I think you need to have that discussion with your veterinarian um, and, and decide on your own level of comfort as well, whether to vaccinate or not. And part of Anna's question, part of Anna's question was, do we know how many horses in the U.S. get botulism each year? Is that a number that we can know, Dr. Little, or do we have any, any idea of how many horses a year get botulism? Unfortunately, no. Uh, I'm certainly not aware of that number. I, 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 would, I wish we were able to know. Uh, botulism is not a reportable disease. Uh, a lot of other diseases, let's say like uh, rabies or West Nile or some of the other uh, diseases that we know of are reportable. So if a, a veterinarian is treating a case of those particular diseases, that has to be uh, the state or federal authority has to be notified of that. So there is uh, much more of, of an ability to keep track of the exact number of cases or at least a, a much better idea of the exact number of cases that are actually happening. But unfortunately, that's not the case with botulism. Uh, so we really do not know how many cases are going on. I think we might be surprised, really, if we actually did, uh, just how many were happening. And, and the, the trouble is it can be so difficult to diagnose. I mean, my guess would be about 200 to 500, um, and probably the, the diagnostic lab at New Bolton could tell us how many samples a year they test from suspicious cases. But a lot of the time, there's, we'll talk about testing later, but there there's a lot of false positives or false negatives as well. So some of those samples that are tested... Um, might not be confirmed, but it's highly suspicious. And then, of course, there's lots of horses that are just found dead and, and the diagnostics are not done, and so people just never know what that horse had or the appropriate samples aren't submitted. But, um, you know, based on I probably saw four or five cases a year at Ohio State and most of the big referral practices that are getting these horses in for intensive care you know, we're probably seeing five to ten cases a year um, to treat and for every case that we receive to treat and to take care of with the intensive care, there's probably another um, 10 to, to 20 that, you know, don't have that opportunity and, and simply are um, euthanised on the farm yeah. or die on the farm. And Dr. Stewart, uh, Abby from Connecticut also wanted to know if there were any risks to vaccination. Uh, Any time you use a needle and a syringe on a horse, there's a risk. Um, and it's usually another clostridial disease that we are concerned about, and that's um, it's a different infection that we can get big abscesses or um, clostridial myositis. Again, that's extremely rare. Um, and if you're clean um, and you don't wave the needle around in the air and catch all the bacteria, but if it's done by a veterinarian or in a well, uh, a vaccine that's been handled appropriately, that's been refrigerated and taken care of, the risks are very, very low. Um, and I really would not consider even the risk wouldn't even come into my assessment. You know, some horses will swell a little bit, um, but it's really quite innocuous from the life-saving uh, immunity that can be gained. Yeah. Dr. Stewart, our next question is from Winona in Massachusetts, and Winona wants to know if it's okay to feed her horses the same haylage that she feeds her cows. Uh, is that appropriate to do? Mm -hmm. And if she does that, is there a way to guarantee that her horses are safe? Oh, there's no guarantee, no guarantee at all. Um, again, and if she's a dairy farmer and she's feeding cattle, she probably knows all about making good quality haylage. Um, haylage can be a very good food source for horses and it's commonly fed in the UK and, and throughout Europe. It's not commonly fed, say, in Australia or, or the US. Um, but there is a big risk because if you don't cure that haylage properly uh, and the pH is not correct, then there's a huge risk of creating an anaerobic environment. And 
cows will often, um, because they're so far less sensitive, um, it's the horse that will die first. So even though it's safe on the cows, that does not guarantee that um, the horse will be safe. You could use the horse to test that it was safe for the cows because the horse would die before the cows, unfortunately. So I would avoid haylage um, in general, but again, if it's very well made, it, it is um, it is quite safe, but you do have to get the pH right and, and cure it properly and be very, very careful. Oh. And Dr. Stewart, I know lots of times, like in my area, uh, I will see ads on Craigslist for, for cow hay or cattle hay. Uh, it's usually hay that's gotten wet. So not haylage, but hay that just maybe didn't cure properly. And lots of times it's a lot less expensive than your horse hay. Is it worth the risk of, of purchasing this less expensive hay that, that might be better for cows? I would say generally not. Um, one, the risk of colic. Horses are just so sensitive with their gastrointestinal tract to impactions and, and other forms of colic, um, also liver disease and, and of course, botulism. So, you know, you might get away with it, but really you've got to take that cost-benefit into analysis and you only end up with one horse with colic and spend $1,000 there or have one death of botulism and that would have bought you a, a lot of nice quality hay, unfortunately. So I would certainly avoid any hay that is um, not of good quality for horses. Okay. You might get away with it with the cattle, but not with okay. the horses. Dr. Little, we have a question from Diane in Wisconsin, and she says that the farmer that she buys her large round bales of hay from used plastic wrap on his hay this year. He uses the hay himself for his beef cattle and isn't concerned with fermentation. Um, is his haste now safe for her horses? Well, I think that some of the same points here can be made that Dr. Stewart just made in the previous question, really. That it's, it's, it's certainly possible that it would be safe for the horse, but anytime we, we wrap a hay bale, we're intentionally really creating an anaerobic environment. And if the process of ensiling is not, not perfect, then it's, it's really an ideal situation for those spores to become active and, and start to produce toxins. So, uh, it's possible it would be safe, but I think any time we're dealing with haylage, our risk of being uh, having a problem or an issue with botulism certainly goes up. And the farmer feeding it to his cows, like Dr. Stewart mentioned, uh, may not have an issue. Uh, the cow is much less susceptible to the toxin than the horse is, so there may be, uh, potentially at least, would be toxin present that would not be present in high enough amounts to, to harm the cow, but would be potentially high enough to kill the horse. So uh, a lot of increased risk when you, you're talking about haylage. So the premium price we pay for horse hay is worth it, Dr. Little? Uh, it's all, you know, what risk we're willing to, willing to take. And I think for the most part, it is it is certainly worth more uh, to be uh, the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure in this uh, and Dr. Stewart, our next question is from Susan in Rhode Island, and she would like to know what is the best post-mortem test for diagnosing botulism, and what precautions should a veterinarian take when performing a necropsy on a suspected botulism case? Right. Well, whether the horse is alive or, or dead, um, a fecal sample, and we usually try and test multiple fecal samples, say one sample per day if you can. So of course, the more samples you run, the more it's going to cost you. But, um, but a fecal sample or if it's from a horse from a post-mortem, intestinal contents as well. So you're taking multiple samples throughout the gastro gastrointestinal tract, some from the stomach, some from the small intestine, large intestine, um, and then the feces as well. Usually a serum sample or a blood sample isn't sufficient because there's probably not enough of the toxin present in the serum unless it was a very, very severe case. Um, and I certainly collect any hay samples can be tested as well. Again, um, it may or may not get you the answer that you're looking for, but, but certainly the more samples that you test, but usually intestinal contents. And as far as precautions, if you're treating a horse with botulism or doing a post-mortem on a horse with botulism, um, it's actually quite safe. Um, I would I would certainly wear gloves and I would make sure I didn't consume any of the 
the intestinal tract or the fecal material. So, you know, I think just wearing gloves, you would be fine. Um, however, if you're performing a post-mortem, it's usually because you don't know what caused the death of the horse or you're not 100% sure. And, of course, we always worry about rabies. Uh, and so I doing a post-mortem on any neurologic horse or any horse that's died for an unknown cause, um, I would be taking precautions for rabies. So goggles, protective clothing, gloves, um, and deciding where the samples have to be submitted for rabies as well. Okay. Dr. Little, we have a question from Kim on our live audience, and she says that she drops small piles of hay from square bales around her pasture so that her horses browse and eat all day. And she said that they don't always finish the hay that she puts out and they'll go back to the piles later, even days later. And she wants to know if that hay that's out in the pasture uh, could be a risk to her horses when they go back to it. Is that cause for concern? Well, it probably depends upon how big the piles are, really how densely packed they are. Um, there would be a lot of factors that would go into evaluating the risk there. Uh, if it's just a small pile that, that's not very densely compacted, you know, chances are that air has contact uh, with all parts of that, that small pile of hay, and realistically the risk would be very low. However, if it's a, a large enough pile to become compacted, uh, to start absorbing moisture potentially from the ground, again, and be cut off from the air supply, and, and as always, the prerequisite of having those spores present, if all those conditions are met, then certainly... Uh, the potential, at least, would be there for toxin to be formed. Uh, but all those would have to be met, and I think it really depends upon the size of the pile and how loosely packed and, and whatnot it is. But I think we do uh, uh, expose or at least increase the risk uh, there, uh, you know, for feeding hay on the ground potentially, and the horses don't clean up the hay. And over time, that hay sits there. Uh, it absorbs moisture, it starts to decay, uh, et cetera. I think that's, a, that's at least a potential breeding ground for uh, toxin production. Okay. And Dr. Stewart, our next questions, uh, we have a couple of questions uh, that came in, one from Deborah in Oregon and one from Jean in West Virginia, and they both want to know about botulism as a neurologic disease, can it be confused with other neurologic diseases? You just mentioned rabies as a possibility. Are there any others that it could be confused with? Um, the, the one thing with botulism is that it causes weakness. The horses don't actually get wobbly. They don't get ataxic. So it can be quite easy to differentiate if you've had a lot of experience um, doing neurologic exams on horses. And so we're looking for specific cranial nerve deficits, the weakness in the face, the weakness in the tongue, the trouble swallowing, um, and then the trembling, the weakness of the muscles and laying down, rather than a horse that, say, has EPM or herpes virus that doesn't know where its feet are, um, they're wobbly, they're having trouble circling, they're standing on themselves. They're quite, quite different. Okay. So, of course, rabies can look like anything, so you always have to remember that one. Okay. Uh, Dr. Little, we have a question from Kima in our live audience, and she wants to know if affected horses can recover without treatment. Really, it really depends upon the amount of toxin they were exposed to. In all likelihood, no, they would not be able to recover without treatment. Uh, we, we've mentioned a couple of times before, the horse is the most susceptible uh, species of animal to the toxin, so it really only takes a very, very minute amount to uh, be deadly for the horse. And realistically, it's of utmost importance to actually initiate treatment very, very early in the disease to be able to have it, any, any kind of decent prognosis as far as giving the horse a chance to recover. So it would be very, very unlikely that a horse could recover without treatment. And in general, as a general rule, the horses actually require very extensive treatment with specific antitoxins and then uh, days and days, if not weeks, of, of uh, round-the-clock type nursing care uh, that goes along with that. So usually it's extensive care that's required for recovery. And even with that, uh, still uh, very high death rates uh, with, with the horses and botulism. Uh, some death rates reported as high as 90% or more. Uh, a little better prognosis in foals. I think because they're a little smaller, a little easier to handle. If they do become recumbent, they can be manipulated a little easier. 
and even uh, put on mechanical ventilation if necessary. But uh, in general, these horses do require just a tremendous amount of therapy. And I think probably 70 to 80 percent of the horses that we treat in the intensive care situation, um, you know, with, with some internists that are well trained and a good nursing crew, we probably save about 70 to 80 percent of those horses. Uh, there's some of them that we elect not to treat to begin with. If, if they're too bad to begin with, if they're having trouble breathing and they're adult horses, then they've got a, a poor prognosis. But yeah, probably even with foals, um, you're saving about 80 to 90% of them if the people are prepared to put in um, the time and effort and, and there's a whole team of people to look after them. It's, it's really not something you can do on the farm. It would be quite impossible. And Dr. Stewart, are there any secondary issues when you do have horses that have botulism in intensive care? Are there yeah. any secondary issues yeah. that can affect yeah. them? <laughs> Definitely. It, it's something where you're taking care of the whole horse. Uh, they can't defecate, they can't urinate, so you have to do enemas on them a couple of times a day. You have to enter their bladder three time, at least three times a day, be very, very sterile. They can get bladder infections. Um, they can't blink, so we have to lubricate their eyes so they don't get corneal ulcers. We usually flip them over about every four hours and keep them on very, very well um, soft padded clean stalls you know if they urinate you've got to clean that up straight away because any kind of moisture and, and just the pressure of being down they will rub through their skin and get big pressure sores um, the horses that try and fight and, and scrabble on the ground we often bandage their legs or bandage their heads just so that if they're trying to get up um, you know they don't damage their legs uh, aspiration pneumonia is another big concern if, if they do try and eat or a foal tries to nurse if they can't swallow properly yes the milk or the food comes out their nose but it can also trickle down their trachea and into their lungs and they can get pneumonia so you really have to take care of the whole animal um, and it, you know it can be one to three to four weeks to look after one of these guys. Dr. Little, we have another question from Benito in Ecuador, and he said that they've had, in the past several months, they've had several sudden deaths of horses, that the horses are okay in the evening, and then in the morning they're found dead. Uh, is, is it possibly botulism with these horses? I think it's certainly possible. I'm, I apologize. I don't know the prevalence or uh, how, how common of an issue uh, it is in Ecuador, but Certainly botulism is a, a cause of death and a fairly rapid cause of death. And, and it all depends upon the level of exposure again to the toxin. So if these horses were potentially exposed to a large amount of toxin, they can die very quickly. And if it's multiple horses in the uh, same area, same paddock, same same uh, spot, then, then I think botulism would, uh, would need to be on the possible list of, of causes. Uh, but there, there's... Probably other causes of sudden death that would have to be evaluated also. So is it definitively botulism? Probably not, but uh, I think it would have to be one of those things that would be on the list of possibilities. Okay. And, you know, rabies is, is a possibility. They've also had triple E in Ecuador, so there's some other things to think about as well. Okay. Uh, we have a question from Carrie, who's listening live in New York, and uh, Dr. Stewart, I'll, I'll hand this one to you. Uh, Carrie wants to know or says that there was a horse that recently died of botulism and it had only shown colic-like uh, clinical signs. Are there any other warning signs that could have uh, enabled them to catch that this was botulism before it was too late for the horse? Yes. Um, again, you, you need to have somebody... I think I learned a great deal during my residency and training to be a specialist. Um, when, she, when, you, when you've seen a number of these cases, you get very good at... Well, you certainly get better um, at diagnosing them based on these very subtle clinical signs. So looking for the poor tongue tone, the decreased tone in the eyelids, the, the trouble swallowing. Um, and, you know, we've performed endoscopy on some of them. And, you know, watching how they eat the grain, you know, it, it can be difficult and we'll often reassess horses several times a day. Um, and, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll converse amongst a group of specialists um, because you do really want to treat them, treat them early. 
So it can be difficult. There have been horses that have actually been cut for colic surgery and and they didn't find anything at colic surgery and then the horse had trouble getting up after anaesthesia and it actually had botulism. So it can be confusing uh, in the early stages. The late stages are easy to diagnose, but yes, then it's too late. So I think if you're not sure um, and your veterinarian's not sure, then this is a case to talk to a specialist at one of the universities or one of the... Um, the American College of Internal Medicine to talk to a specialist who's seen these cases before uh, and whether it can be done on the telephone or videos or you know actually taking the horse where it can be can be appropriately treated and that treatment started as soon as possible. Okay our next question is for for you Dr. Little and this came in from Barbara in Australia and Barbara says that they recently had a free-ranging peacock die from botulism should we be worried about our horses as well uh, they're in the same area where the peacock was what advice would you have for Barbara Dr. Little usually when I think of uh, botulism in an avian species I think of top C botulism uh, so Type C is one of the ones that, that horses are susceptible to. So it tells me that the organism is present you know, in that geographic location. Uh, now there would have to be different risk factors as far as a horse being exposed to it potentially compared to the bird being exposed to it. But the one thing it does tell me is that the organism is present and uh, really speaks to the advice to follow a lot of the, uh, the things that we've spoke about already tonight, uh, you know, uh, looking for those signs of decaying vegetation, decaying animal carcasses, and limiting the horse's exposure to that sort of thing, and, and hopefully that would go a long way in preventing it. But uh, having had a case there of botulism, it does tell me it's present, albeit likely type C. Okay. Dr. Stewart, we have a question from Marianne in Kentucky, and she wants to know if you can smell botulism in your hay. No, no, I can't. No, I don't think so. Well, we should get our detector dogs from Auburn University onto that, but I doubt it. Sorry. Um, our next question, um, let me see what's coming in here. Um, we have a question from Denise in Virginia, and Denise says that she thinks the only way to feed round bales without worry is to give the botulism shots. Uh, Dr. Little, would you agree with that? Well, uh, you know, we touched on it a little bit in that it's very difficult to inspect every inch of that, that hay in that, in, that, in that large round bale. Uh, it's certainly advisable to do everything you can to either buy your hay from a rec reputable source and try to do your best to ensure that it is of good quality and the person that you get that hay from certainly uh, is very competent as far as knowing how to harvest, how to be sure that the hay is cured properly and, and baled properly and ultimately stored properly. And all those things certainly go toward decreasing the risk, but it, it would be almost impossible to inspect every inch of that bale. So uh, certainly in certain areas of the country, if we're feeding round bales, I think uh, uh, the botulism vaccine would be warranted there uh, just to be another added uh, part of the strategy or that preventive strategy going into preventing botulism. Okay. And we are just about out of time this evening. Um, we, we have a question. I'm going to throw this one out really quickly for, for one of you. It's from Linda, who's listening live in Pennsylvania. And Dr. Stewart, she says, is the botulism spore different from a mold spore? Yes, yeah. A mold is a fungus, um, and the botulism is a bacteria. You won't be able to see the bacteria. Well, you might see or smell moldy hay, but you won't be able to tell if the, the botulism bacteria or its spores um, you can't see them to tell the difference or to, to, to identify them. So, yes, they are quite different. Okay. They can and be seen together, though, but they are different themselves. Okay. So we are at the end of our hour. So before we close, I'd like to ask each of you, what is the one most important thing you would like the audience to take away uh, from our discussion tonight? And let's start with you, Dr. Little. 
Well, I think uh, my goal and certainly me and goal has been to really educate the horse owner and really uh, help them to know what their true risk of botulism is and then do that risk-benefit analysis with your veterinarian to really decide at what risk your horse is and then decide at what risk uh, you know, you're willing to take when it comes to the vaccination. And, and if it's appropriate, certainly the vaccination is available. If it's uh, you know, relatively low risk and someone's comfortable with that, then that's okay too. But I just want people to be aware of their true risk of botulism. And just want to add, we do have as a source of information a website. It's called equinebotulism.com. But horse owners or anyone for that matter could go on to to uh, seek botulism information. And then we also have an email address that any questions could be addressed to us at equinebotulism at neogen.com. Okay. And Dr. Stewart? Um, I think the vaccination that we've already talked about, but, but also as, as my situation as an internist and a critical care specialist, that if you're at all suspicious that your horse or a friend's horse might have a botulism to get veterinary assistance immediately and, if necessary, specialist assistance, this is not something you can wait and see how the horse is doing tomorrow. And uh, to get that care and treatment and the, the antitoxin as soon as possible, you know, every hour actually matters. So if, if people think of, if you're thinking of botulism, you're almost at the point that you almost need to be ordering um, the antiserum to try and start treating it in a horse that's weak and laying down and poor tongue tone, poor eyelid tone, any of those clinical signs. Early okay. treatment is the, the best chance of survival. Okay. Well, thank you, doctors, for taking this evening to talk to us about botulism. I want to thank uh, Neogen for sponsoring tonight, uh, and also to our audience, our live audience, who sent in great questions also to anyone who will be listening to the archive version. If you want to listen again, our, the archive will be up um, tomorrow. And if you have any other questions about botulism, you can go to thehorse.com, do a search in the search bar at the top of the page. Uh, we have thousands of articles about horse health and lots of good information about botulism as well. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us and good night.